This is The Guardian. Hi, this is Guardian Australia Reads. I'm Jane Lee. Every week we pick some of The Guardian's best stories and then we read them aloud for you. This season, we thought we'd try something new. We're bringing you an extended Guardian Australia Reads with three stories rather than the usual one. And sometimes we're going to try out a themed episode, like this one we have for you today. I've been back at work for a couple of weeks now, but I'll be honest, part of me is still playing cricket with my friends and jumping waves at the beach, which is where I spent a lot of my summer break. And I think many of you are probably feeling the same way. So today we're going to take you back with four stories about the beach. When you're young, falling in love can be tricky. But when you add the ocean and some sand, it can get even more complicated. Two weeks at Stradbroke Island was a Christmas tradition with my dad. One that I resisted every year because none of my friends were there, leaving me feeling like the lonely older kid hanging out with my little brother's friends. But this year was different. I was allowed to bring Jenna. My first time with Jenna had been nervous, tentative. In the spare bedroom of our friend whose parents were away a lot, we crossed the threshold while this year's love spun on CD. After that, we started doing it whenever and wherever we could. To two teenagers who had just discovered sex, the whole world looked like a bed. It felt thrilling, illicit, each time like lightning. Every space, public and private, was an opportunity. My bed, her bed, behind the pool shed at a party on a surprisingly cold night, the spa in the pool area of the complex where she lived, standing up in the change rooms at Maya Queen Street. This was how grown-ups behave, we figured. It didn't matter that the sex itself was rushed and messy. We felt warm and excited and alive, stealing moments to press ourselves together at parties while our friends necked Smirnoff double blacks and fell into bushes. As our list of secret sex locations grew, so did our ambition. We looked for somewhere to cap it all off, somewhere thrilling and romantic and beautiful. It was the beach. We had to have sex on the beach. Which is how we came to be standing at 10pm on New Year's Eve on a beach on Stradbroke Island, halfway through my family holiday, Havianas in our hands and sex in our hearts. We played it cool for a few days. Then on the 31st of December, the most romantic night of the teenage year, we made our move. After all that planning and anticipation, it was fine. It was hard to make it work around our clothes and the excitement wore off pretty quickly. And the sand. Who knew a beach had so much of it? Pervasive and gritty, it quickly hardened under the compacting force of repetitive motion. 
So once we'd had some kisses and some thrusts, we figured we had achieved our goal and decided to go back to the unit to finish up properly in private. But sand behaves differently in different contexts. Brushed onto skin in a JLo music video, it's sexy and elegant. On mass and at night, it comes to feel like cold concrete. And somewhere between those two extremes, it resembles a loosely organized militia-like exfoliant. Seemingly everywhere, impossible to detect until it ambushes you in the single bed of the holiday room you share with your little brother where you somehow swallow an entire bucket's worth. Luckily, my little brother was out all night with his nice friends, so while Jenna raced embarrassed into the shower and I gargled 18 glasses of water, we were at least granted the mercy of suffering our humiliations in private. Until now, I guess. That was, as our list of secret sex locations grew, so did our ambition, by Tom Slater. To see a photo of Tom today at the beach, fully clothed, we'll post a link to this story on our website. Linton Mortensen wanted to become the first person to swim all the way around Lord Howe Island, and he soon came face to face with a surprise in the water. I fell into open ocean swimming after an incident in 2012. Not long after my 48th birthday, I ripped my right bicep tendon off the bone, mucking around at the beach with my kids. After surgery to reattach the tendon, I started swimming for rehab. Then I met long-distance swimmer Trent Grimsey, who encouraged me to train for ocean swimming. In 2018, I became the first Australian to complete the Ocean 7, solo swimming across seven channels around the world. When COVID made overseas swims impossible, I considered Lord Howe Island, not just for a family holiday, but an island to swim around. No one had done it. I also discovered the work of scientist Dr Jennifer Lavers, She leads a small team researching the impact of plastic pollution in the stomachs of Lord Howe's shearwater birds. Her project gave me extra impetus to do the swim, to raise money for their research. On the morning of the swim, Valentine's Day 2021, my wife Lisa and our three kids were up at 4am having breakfast and preparing my swim food. You can't do ocean swimming without your support team following in a boat. To keep my energy up to swim for such long periods, I stop around every 40 minutes and tread water while consuming a feed, drinks like Gatorade, electrolytes or Ovaltine. We left our cabin at 5am, our backpacks packed with food and camera equipment. Because Lord Howe is a bike-only island, we had to ride bikes down a massive hill in the dark using our phone torches for lights. I thought, if I survive this, I can survive anything. 
Waiting at the beach was Michael Bannister, who we call Banno, who had offered to accompany me around the island on a paddleboard. Having Banno, an experienced lifesaver paddling by my side at water level, gave extra reassurance. On the support boat was Captain Jack Schick, my family, and three Lord Howe Islanders. I entered the water at 6.30am. It was rough swimming out of the lagoon to the top of the island. I punched through choppy waters, conditions I favour. I've earned my nickname, Sea Bull, for a good reason. After swimming around the top of the island, I was out in the deep ocean, stopping for a feed below Mount Gower, the highest peak on the island, was extraordinary. The view from the water to the top was like Jurassic Park meets Atlantis. Trevor Hendy, an old friend and former Ironman champion who runs a swim school on the island, had joined us and paddled over to me on an ocean ski. Mate, are you just taking it all in? He asked. I said, yeah, when am I ever going to do something like this again? And that's when it became interesting. The oceans around Lord Howe are home to Galapagos whaler sharks. They are not known to be aggressive, but in packs, they can be. I'd spied one cruising below me at a depth of about 50 metres. At my next feed, there were more and they were closer. My team carries two shark shields, two metres of trailing antenna, which emit an electronic field around me. They cause harmless spasms in sharks' short-range electrical receptors that, in theory, turns them away. The safe range is within two metres. Anything beyond that, The shield doesn't work. The shark numbers were increasing, their body movements becoming jerkier. As I turned to keep vision on them, suddenly a bigger one emerged from the deep, swimming straight towards me, eyeballing me from about three metres. I yelled out to Jack, I think they're definitely inquisitive now, mate. Jack yelled back, Don't worry, big fella, it would take 20 of the bastards to eat you. That helped break the tension. My eldest son dropped a shark shield in the water. I continued swimming behind the line, attached to my son's ocean kayak. The sharks dropped off a little, eventually trailing away by the time we got around the mountain. Returning to the lagoon at sunset was beautiful. My family swam with me to shore. Somehow I'd scraped my ankle on coral, but nothing was going to stop me walking up the beach and grabbing a cold beer from the local greeting party. The official end time was 6.59pm. I'd circumnavigated Lord Howe over 30 kilometres in 12 hours and 29 minutes. Walking into the restaurant that night for dinner, I received a standing ovation. It was a little embarrassing. 
ocean swimming is not an individual event. It's a team sport. That was I've Earned My Nickname Seabull for Good Reason by Linton Mortensen, as told to Jennifer Johnston. To see a photo of Linton and a Galapagos whaler shark during his swim, check out the link to the story on the Guardian Australia Reads website. I love parties, and parties at the beach are next level. The sea breeze, the salty taste everything gets... This next story is about what must go down as one of the greatest ever beach parties, on the water with no holds barred, to help a family say goodbye to their beloved holiday home. My mum used to share a holiday house with her brothers and sisters down on the Mornington Peninsula. When they told us one year they wanted to sell it, my cousin, sister and I so desperately wanted to keep it that we came up with an idea. We'd start throwing mini festival parties in summer to show them how many people loved the house. Every February, we invited people to camp and we'd book about 20 local acts, always trying to make these events really special. Sometimes we created interesting collaborations. Other years, they were one-off performance art events. But finally, the time came. The house was put on the market. We'd have one last send-off. So we decided to hold that year's event on the water. We hired a violinist and trumpeter and a group of fiddlers to lead everyone down from the grass to the shore. We formed a conga line, all dancing down the street, down the steep little cliff path towards the beach, where we were met by a surprise. Musician Oliver Mann was there to greet us, in the water just above his knees, serenading us with opera. The water was so still it looked like glass. You could see his reflection so perfectly. We all lay in the water. It was one of those stinking hot days, listening to his offer. We had timed it so well too. The sun was just setting. It looked as if the bay was on fire. We live in a painting, I thought. It was one of those moments when you realise just how gorgeous Australia is. From there, everyone started partying as night fell. We'd set up a sound system and we danced until the early hours. Dancing on sand was, of course, an epic leg workout. I have snatches of memories from that party, points where slowed down bootleg remixes started playing and it felt like everything was happening in slow motion. Lying in the boat shed with my head melting into the steps. People slowly peeled away, returning to the campsite and at sunrise there were only a few of us left. As usual, I'd wandered off, which is something I tend to do at parties, and I found myself in a canoe 
high on mushrooms with a boombox blasting Mariah Carey. I cannot explain how I got into that canoe, but there I was, enjoying the bliss while someone else paddled out. If I'd had my senses about me, I would have thought being out at sea in a tiny boat was a little bit dangerous. But the sun was rising. My friends were on the shore. You could see all the way down to the bottom of the sand. And touch my body was playing, so there was no fear, just the safest feeling. That day, as we all woke up and started to recover, we made our classic morning after meal. Just three to four packets of meagering to yourself, topped up with fried eggs and peas and butter. The meal you had when you knew you'd had the perfect evening. I realized I had managed to work myself so hard that my legs were cramped and stiff as boards, well worth it for the night that was. The ending was so bittersweet. We were never going to have this house again. It was the last party down that side of the coast where I'd spent my whole childhood. But we'd had a beautiful moment, shared with everyone. A story we would tell in years to come. That was I Found Myself in a Canoe on Mushrooms with a Boombox Blasting Mariah Carey by Bonoffi as told to Michael Sun. To see photos of Bonoffi, check out the link to this article on our website. Bonoffi's new album, Tear Tracks, is out now. You know, the beach is a great equaliser. There's young bodies, saggy bodies, baby bodies, and older bodies who've been diving beneath the waves forever. In this last story, a deeply personal look back at one woman's long and beautiful life at the beach. I used to live in Manly in Sydney and was on holidays at Byron Bay with my husband, Merv, when he said, I'm not going home. So I went home on my own, packed up, and we bought a place up in the hills at Federal in the Byron Bay hinterland for $235,000. I sold that after he died 22 years ago, and I came into town to be closer to the beach. Merv was a big smoker, but when he died after an 18-month battle with bone cancer, they found disease everywhere except in his lungs. He would have said, I told you so. Men always have the last say. He died in the winter, and it was raining. He would have been very happy about that because he loved having rainwater in the tanks. The first time I went to the beach, about a month after Merv died, it was pretty good. I was with his brother and we scattered some of Merv's ashes into the water. His brother said, bon voyage, but the ashes kept washing into the beach again. It was clear Merv didn't want to go. We had a bit of a giggle about that. That was the day I started seeing the birds in the sky. 
When Merv was in hospital, he used to watch the kites flying outside his window. That day, a big kite eyeballed me all the way along the beach. It was amazing. I was married for more than 60 years, and there's not a day that goes by that I don't think of him. He's my anchor. He was a sailor, and he keeps me bound to the earth, and he's not ready for me just yet. He always said he'd come back as a sea eagle, and I always look up when I'm at the beach. They are so often above me, and I think, There he is. He's there. I used to be called Lorraine. When my mother died, she left me some money and said I needed to go to Africa. The day I was due to leave, I got out of the shower and there was a feather on the floor. I put it in my wallet and still have it. After Merv died, I started writing poetry and would sign it Lone Feather. The kids around town started to call me Feather. Whenever I went down to the beach, there were always feathers. I've still got heaps of feathers in the house. They are everywhere. I've always loved the beach because I didn't have to wear many clothes. I used to go topless and was still going topless two years ago, but the place, the goddess pool where I used to sit, is no longer there. So I'll leave going topless up to the young people. I used to get my middle finger painted at the salon and I'd just give people the finger if they stared at me. I don't have to give them the finger anymore. I've got a few health problems. Turning 80 seems to be the magic number when things go wrong. I had to give up riding my bike to the beach, but I have friends who take me and we sit there for a few hours. We lost a lot of the beach with the erosion. I absolutely miss it when I don't go, but I still get to the beach most days. That was The Ashes Kept Washing In Again. It was clear my husband didn't want to go. By Feather Thompson, as told to Christine Retchlag. That's our show today. I hope it managed to bring some sea and sand back into your day wherever you're listening. All of the articles in this episode were read by Rochelle Fong. And if you want to read the original articles, go to Guardian Australia's website. This episode was produced by Alison Chan, Camilla Hannon, Daniel Simo and me, Jane Lee. See you next time.